Welcome to Simple and Deep, a podcast about the power of engaging our story to love fully. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards, and I'm happy you're here. Let's get started. Welcome back to Simple and Deep. I'm your host, Wisteria Edwards. And today we have Paul Lally, who's here with us. And he was a director for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in the 80s. So, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure to be here with you. Happy to talk about one of my best friends. Wonderful. So I saw, was it about 100 episodes that you directed? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I worked with Fred Rogers when, what was the expression, during his Cary Grant phase of his career where he looked great. He was in his probably middle 60s. Everybody knew who he was. It was just a, a kind of the salad days of, of his life's work. It was really great. I was thinking about that this morning. I would call it the golden age of Mr. Rogers. I would. And that was when I watched it. So of course I would think it is, but I do agree. I think that, like you said, he's in great shape. He's willing to take a lot of risks. He's still kind of inventing, but he kind of found his rhythm. There's just something so beautiful about that time where he had come back and really decided to themes as the way that he would structure a week. That was very important too during that time. Wouldn't you agree? Totally. Yeah. That was his, his breakthrough. He realized that if, if rather than individual programs, you had a week, you had a story arc and that really helped establish, you know, cause some things take more than 24 minutes to talk about. And in his case, it would take a solid week. And so all the programs I worked on, and I also wrote some episodes for Fred, so I had the 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 kind of daunting pleasure <laughs> of writing for the show as well. So I had to learn how to write Fredish, as we would call it back then. I had to get into it exactly. I was just going to say that. Yes. So which which episodes did you write? I did a series on work when there was a, they dug a pool in the neighborhood of make believe and. They uh, sprung a leak in it and had to fix it, et cetera, et cetera. It was about work, people working, people working in the daytime, people working in the nighttime. I wrote, I wrote all those scripts, yeah. So that was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, I think that people don't realize, maybe more so now that they've had some documentaries and such that have brought attention to the intentionality of Fred. And you did speak to Fredish, which was really quite daunting and and it was it was a, a joke obviously with the crew but i think it's really important that we recognize that fred rogers had a whole system of speaking to children because he truly believed that that was what was important is that the words that we choose have tremendous power in the life of a child or with people in general but definitely with children he didn't want anybody to misinterpret or be confused about what was being said and I'll give you a good example of that, that when people would have spoken to me about Fred when he was in his house, not when neighbor Mapley, but in his house, he seemed so conversational in how he was speaking. But every word you see there was carefully crafted, every single word. It was on teleprompter because he did not want to make a single mistake in that time when he was that Fred, as we used to call it. And so that he was so good at what he did, it sounded like he was just talking like you and I are talking, but it was deliberate and focused. 
And I and I had to write that sometimes. That was very scary, but I could do it. <laughs> Why was it scary? Was it because he was a perfectionist the way he no. worked? Or was it? No, I think when you're a writer, and I am a writer, you have to, and I've written for television and screenplays and things like that. You have to, if you're writing for somebody else, it's a big difference. I've written stuff for James Earl Jones and for certain people. I'm not name dropping. I'm just saying that these people have a certain cadence to how they speak, not only how they speak, but what's going through their heads. So it's that sort of thing. You have to project yourself and sort of become a medium for the person. But I was able to do it and and I was happy and proud of that. Right. So I've heard the story, but I would love to hear the story for the listeners again of how you came to actually direct Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. How did that work out for you? In my job, I had worked in public television for 10 years prior, and the company I was working with, a kid's kids, uh, company, uh, went belly up. I was freelancing. I answered an ad in Broadcasting Magazine, a little teeny ad that said, wanted television director for children's program. Period. That was it. Respond, box, wow. whatever. And that was all it took. And I met Fred. And it changed and, your life. Yeah. You bet. It was, a big, it was a huge hit. And I was thrilled to death. And uh, part of why I was hired was because of I could write as well. And they were planning to expand beyond the neighborhood into family entertainment, not just for children, which was vital, but family. That's why his company at the time was called Family Communications. So, while I was there, I also wrote uh, a screenplay for American Playhouse, which we produced, so that kind of thing. So writing and words and communication is what Fred was all about, whether it was on the street with a person, whether it was on television. He knew how to get from A to B with, with a topic. And that was, I think, one of his best gifts or his greatest gifts was his art of paying attention to a person when he was speaking to them. Can you speak to a little bit of that as far as he was a great communicator, but he was also a fantastic listener. Big time, far more. He'd get you, I'd watch so many newspaper reporters and magazine writers come in and want to do stories on Fred and he could turn in a, turn you on a dime. Fred had an innate ability to find the very thing you were most proud of and he would have you start talking about that. And he would just drill in deeper and deeper. And you'd find yourself just blabbing away. And I have carried that knowledge into my professional life ever since. I, mean, I always look for, you know, that, that thing that somebody really is proud of because it's a way to say, I see you, I hear you, and I, I acknowledge you. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see and be seen. And Fred used to say all the time, and I really believe that people, there's two things in life, and maybe Fred didn't, either I have grown into that, that people want to love and be loved. Everything else is commentary. And I mean a lot of commentary, but they want to love and be loved. And by and large, they like to be loved first, and then they like to love. Nothing wrong with that. With childhood, that's what happens. So I just think... I think of his quote where he talks about, you know, that to truly, we have to truly love ourselves before we can impart love to other people, as well as knowing that we are valuable and that we are unique and love and we are lovable. And I think about teachers and if they have this enormous hole inside their souls, 
it's going to be really hard to fill the buckets of children because they're filling from an empty bucket. So it's knowing that we have value first. Yeah. Well, often, and this is where important that as an adult, but as a child, you know, you have to, that's what Fred was able to do was to, to, to be loved. You know, there's something, maybe it's a Bible thing, but we love because he first loved us, meaning that he being, you know, the idea of God or something, but we love because he first loved us. And I think it's the chicken or the egg. In this case, it's the egg first. I have two grown daughters and grandchildren, and they needed to experience love before they could love. I mean, I don't think it spontaneously happens in a human being. By and large, it's the opposite. They, you know, people experience a lack of love. In the oh, you're actually, it's actually been proven. It's it's really the, the neurobiology of our brain and the attachment that we create as children. And that goes into why I'm writing my book, because... Fred was actually a surrogate uh, model for what children need to be attached to their caregivers. They need someone that looks at them in the eyes, that leans in, that listens, that asks questions and is curious, that can be an adult that can hold that space when a child is having a negative emotion and they're able to you know, kind of guide that child, but not with shame and not with these these harsh words, but just really in a loving, gentle way. And I think that's why people bonded to Fred. I, I heard many stories as I've researched about children just walking up to him and they thought he knew them, right? Because, <laughs> you know, think that he can see them and know them. And so he took the time to really emphasize that he was a television friend, that he was on television, that he couldn't really see them. Good point that you raise that anybody who appears on television, and Fred learned this, that you presume people, if uh, uh, children presume a relationship with adults, presume a relationship because you've been inside their home in a little screen, but you have to realize as a human being, they really don't know you, but you have to allow them to be your friend that way because they presume it. I've watched that happen again and again and again. And it's important for anybody who is a communicator, certainly the medium of, of broadcasting, that people do presume relationships. Countless with the kids come up, Mr. Rogers, you know, they just boom. Fred understood that. He got all that stuff. So thankfully. Talk to me about how he in interacted with children. What were some of his automatic norms when he would, would greet children on the street, like you said, or step one, he would get down to eye level, never stand above, never be Mount Rushmore towering over a child. You go down to eye level. He could get down. He could squat down faster than anybody I know. He was just like an elevator. He dropped down and, and he would smile. And those two gestures started things rolling and he would ask questions. And very often he would, at the very end of something, not to jump forward in the encounter, but he would say, could I shake your hand? Would you mind? You know, at the very end of visiting, you know, and the little kid would shake hands and he said, you're very brave to do that. And the kid would smile, you know. Yeah, he did not. He did certainly did not. Fred did not. Well, I suppose he didn't presume anything, you know. We talked about uh, 
him asking for permission. I think that's, that's just an incredible thing that we often don't do with children. We invade their space a lot. And um, I, I think that's a, a beautiful gift. Where else did you see uh, his art of paying attention on the set, per se? I think for me, there was just this constant alertness to his environment. And some people you would call it being hypervigilant. You know, you see some people who are pretty sure they're going to get smacked around a little bit. They're hypervigilant. They're always looking around the corner. Fred's hypervigilance was was benign. It was very loving hypervigilance that there wasn't, he didn't miss a trick. And that if you spoke to him, it was all, it was always all about you. That was just one of his gifts. He just, he just was the way he was. And he delighted in, I think in, how do you say this? There's so many times I'd watch him talk with other people and his head would tip to one side or to the other that he was he was so attentive to what they were saying. And you see it with Johnny Costa, you know, the music director, or Nick Tallow, the floor director, just the 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 love that he had for these people. And that for him, it was such a daily miracle that all this craziness was happening. It was actually happening. That one day he told me that, that I, I did voice work as well for Fairytale series and and was doing some things like that. And he, I produced some audio tapes and he bought them. And he said, I love what you did because I couldn't do that if I tried. Because the minute I think I can do it, I really want to try to do it. But he said, since I can't, I just love it. And just the way he looked at me and his eyes were bright, he said, but when I work on this Mr. Rogers neighborhood, I get to use everything in me down to my fingertips, my, my working with puppets, my writing, my music, my humor, my love for children and, and early childhood development. He said, everything in me I have to use and I get to use. And I could see that always in the studio, especially. That would be like the tip of a mountain. Every 90 days, we would go down in and do a week's worth of programming. And every 90 days, he would be absolutely in his glory because he was in the middle of a miracle as far as he was concerned. And he was seeing it. And he was smart enough to take every advantage of it and share it with others. I'll give you another quick example of his attentiveness. We would go out and film on location, stuff, go to a restaurant, and the crew. Our grace, number one, would be we wouldn't thank God for our meal. We would thank the corporation for public broadcasting. We viewers nationwide. <laughs> that was our that was our our, our our grace at the table. <laughs> and then you'd look at the menu and People, you know, the camera operators and me and Margie, the producer. And Fred would say, oh, look at that. Look at that casserole. That's interesting. He would start to make comments. But that was his way of saying, somebody ought to order that because I want a taste of it. And that's what he would do. So by the time <laughs> he would order like one thing, and but by the time everything arrived, it was like this big smorgasbord. And you're passing dishes round and round to Fred, and oh, I'll have just a little bit, and blah blah blah. So it was very funny. But that was his <laughs> engagement. Funny. His engagement, yeah, it's funny. 
Oh, I, I just it's for well. childlike. It's not childish, but childlike. That that oh, essence God, yeah. of re- childhood, yeah. curiosity, wonder, whimsy. You know, the other day I have to say that kindergarten we watched the balloon episode of going to the factory and how they made the balloon but then there's the segment right where fred is just making the balloon make all the crazy noises and you know the farting sounds and my kids were dying and but but what what's funnier to me is fred in that segment because he is totally having the time of his life making the balloon squeak just like, remember what you just said. Be anywhere else. He was having the time yeah. of his life, and you've you yes. know this, and very common that people. Uh, Fred would always say that, you know, and people get it backwards with children. All the work you do, you do in childhood, and when you're an adult, you get to play. People get that backwards and think, "Oh, we, you know, kids are running around no. playing." He said, that, "Well, you know that as a teacher, they're busting their chops trying to figure out how the world works. It's very complicated, and no wonder they sleep. You know, <laughs> they crash at night. But, but so Fred was a good example of what it's like to be an adult and play." And I really learned from yes. that. I was a crazy man with my kids because I would play with them, and I was dead serious about play <laughs> because it's play. And I'm a grown up, so I have. A, I used to tell my kids, "Look, the only difference between you and me: a, I'm gigantic. I'm like six four. I'm sorry. I'm real tall. Two, I have a driver's license. Three, I can buy candy anytime I want." I said, "Other than that, we're just the same." And I would say all this by. I would be down on my knees looking at these kids, these Sarah and Gabriel, remember them, looking at me straight ahead. And I said, look, we're just the same. Otherwise, we're absolutely the same. You and me, you know, I'm just gigantic. But that's going to change. And you'll get a driver's license. You'll buy candy, blah, 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 blah. What I was doing in my own clunky way was what Fred would do with anybody. He wouldn't talk about driver's licenses and getting candy bars. But that's what he did. He... Uh, um, was really saying, look, we're in the same boat together. You're little, I'm big, whatever. Or to me, you know, we're all in this together. He was very unified in his thinking. It came through a sense of spirituality. I can tell you that for a fact, because we were really close that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, Fred loved, he was an iconoclast. An iconoclast is just me, someone who likes to bust things up. That he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, but he he loved all these different faiths and loved to poke holes in it because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, in your search for whatever it is that constitutes a higher power in you, in your search for it, you ought to be willing to really dig deep. So we would go to the Christian science meetings on Wednesday night. I was studying at the time. That was pretty neat stuff. He loved it because Wednesday night, people would stand up and just talk about how Christian science you know, helped them with something in their daily life. And he and I were both struck with the the natural eloquence of human beings who would just stand up and talk about something that was important to them. It was not like you'd have a gift of tongues or some kind of dramatic thing, but people would just talk and it was proof positive. He and I would just look at each other and give us each other the look because it was just astonishing to see the, the uh, ability of human beings to be uh, so engaged in their world. I just uh, you know, and that's in the specific is the universal. Okay, that's a big rule that that it is 
If I talk to you and say a man walks into a bar, okay, but I say a man walks into a bar, he's got kind of a limp, and every time he turns to the left, he sort of scratches his cheek a little bit. So the more I get specific, the more it gets universal. I don't know why it works that way, but it does. That the more Fred would get specific, because we start to identify with our own universality. It's just, it's beautiful that way. So, and isn't it odd that in a mass communication, you think you have to be very broad and general, but in fact, no, you have to take a balloon and make it fart. That's what Fred could do. Yeah. He would be specific yeah. and everybody go, yes. oh yeah. Again, that's his skill. And he wasn't a magician. You can do it. I can do it. Interesting because the more I've done research with Fred and applied it to my life and in my classroom, the better teacher I am, the less I worry about dumb things that don't matter. I, I let go. I, I, I cleaned off surfaces and made them places where they could put their and I gave them tons of trash to, to dig in. And it was interesting because as soon as Fred started showing how he could make a puppet stage, then all of a sudden they were making puppet stages. They were wanting, I mean, we couldn't keep toilet paper tubes in stock. They would bring them in all the time, you know, and all of a sudden they're popular's and their flute, what have you. So it definitely changed their curiosity as well as their creativity by watching him and knowing that it's okay to be silly and not have a plan to just let it happen. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he would amplify those things. It was all very structured. Something that that very concept you were talking about, talking about, he would in the, in the process of uh, writing a script, he would bury those concepts into play and into situations but at heart was a concept that he wanted to communicate to a child. For instance, um, and give you a good example of the scripts I wrote with one was with the the building a, a pool in the neighborhood of make believe. So in the segment where Fred's in his house, he goes out in the back and there's a he has a sandbox there up on stilts. And he would mm-hmm. he, he built up a little mountain of sand, then he puts a hole in it. And then he pours water into it and he keeps pouring until it starts to break out and start to spill. So he moves his hand in real fast. He's just talking about, you know, playing. But I'm going to back that whole concept down into you that that the shows we were doing were on economics, building something and paying for it. Okay, And in economics, it's all about supply and demand. And Margaret McFarlane and I talked. And she said, "Well, and she was the guru, not me. I was the at the knee at the at the knee of the guru, whatever." She said, and well, she had a very tiny voice like this. She spoke very. That's just how she spoke. She said, and I won't mimic her because it sounds ridiculous. But she said that with the child and toilet training is very essential because we were talking to preschoolers, children still wet the bed, and you know they don't have complete mastery of their bowels. She said. With the child, when they're first becoming, learning how to be t- toilet trained, if you will, or control the body, is supply and demand. You got it, and mommy wants it. Okay? So, it's that <laughs> simple. You got it, mommy wants it, supply, demand. So, then I took the building the water, making a little bowl that that sometimes you 
wet your pants, you know, you've peed your pants. But you can put your hand around the Fred is, you know, keeping the water. He's, he's, all he's doing when all a child is watching at a peripheral level is a preschooler is a man building, putting water inside, like making a little volcano. It starts to spill. He, he keeps it. What he's modeling is that you can eventually control something you can't control sometimes. Oh, see how that's all drilled down? Wow. And the trick is to, the trick is to cover yeah. this with, with paper mache until the child can't figure out that that was at the root. So the symbolism is very deep. It's like the keel of a sailboat. Yeah. And all you're seeing are the sails. But the keel was always in all of Fred's episodes. And that's what I had to learn as a writer, that that's what's at the bottom. He and, and Margaret McFarlane would combine and do that that the magic together with early childhood, which is not my field, but. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that was the fact that their ability to remember childhood, their ability to empathize with what it was like to be a child, to remember being a child is the first key to helping a child because we can remember how it felt to be small or powerless or wetting our pants or, I remember the first time I had to take a nap without sucking my finger at because I was trying to be a big girl. And it was such a big deal for me to be able to do that. So those milestones, and I love that he's always, you know, at some point this might happen, but right now it's okay that this is happening. Like he just, it's very kind, kind way of speaking to children. You know, that if you're, if you're, if you're curious about this, People who love you that would love to tell you about that. And that's how I grounded the whole concept of the pandemic with my children before we left in March was COVID-19 is an adult problem. And so you have adults that love you and that are going to take care of you and keep you safe. And and so Fred has, has just allowed me to speak to children in a way that absolutely soothes their fears and their anxieties about things. Yeah. And it's let me ask you a question. It's, isn't it easy when you can meet a child yes. as an equal? You don't have to go through all kind of reduction gears. It's just, you know, it's just a little kid. And you, it, I find it effortless. You would think it's the opposite. But if you meet somebody, include if it's a little teeny kid, but you meet them like an equal. Say, what's happening? What's going on? I read... Before I moved out here to Arizona, I read every, once a week to daycare center kids, a, a United Way program that helps kids get literate before they go to kindergarten. So I was like a rock star, you know, these guys, they come in. Yeah, but I would come in, and they're all, you know, four or five years old max. And I'd sit down, and right. i say, so what's happening? Tell me the dirt. What's the gossip? Who's like, like, like I just did? Come on, come on. What's happening? And I would kind of scrunch down. Now, they would rarely <laughs> tell me anything, but it was the tone of my voice and my right. uh, just meeting them as equals. So, what's going on? What's happening? That it just happening, man. You're crazy about it because, and I, this is a podcast, so I can say that. Ernest Hemingway, I'm a writer, so obviously I'm filled with little quotes. He said, human beings have a built-in shockproof bullshit detector. Okay. It's built in, it's shot. Oh, yeah. And it'll go off when you and kids are are fabulous that way. And you just do. 
Oh, and yeah. What my goal in life with a child is to never set off that bullshit detector. <laughs> you know, I just am straight with them. And I take a chance. They can sense a fraud from a mile away. Mutual, our common humanity. The two of us, whether it's a five-year-old or it's you right now that I'm speaking with you, we are in this. We're the same. We are all bozos on the same bus. That's my particular uh, right. uh, worldview. And I practice it. And I know that people want to love and be loved. And I also know they want to be loved first, <laughs> just like I do. So I have to love them first before they'll love me. I just do. And it never fails. Right. And um, I'm grateful for that. All of this has come through me, through Fred along the way. I had 10 years with him, 10 years in an office, <sighs> 10 years of sitting was called chair time with Fred. He didn't have a desk, you know, hit a chair, a couch, and another chair. Right. So we'd see, he'd sit at the end of the couch uh-huh. and I'd sit in the chair next to him, close the door, and we would just shoot the breeze, have fun, talk. I mean, about everything. Yeah. But chair time with Fred. But we were just friends, you know? We would go out and do stuff. So Right. Uh, and he's a funny guy. Funny, funny, funny. And just... He had a, an explosive laugh. It was like a bark, almost like a, like a seal laughing, you know? He would just burst out laughing. I love it. Tell me about when you and Fred would go to the hospital in the middle of the night. Oh, we were secret, took- our secret trips, yeah. Yeah, he would call me up. Well, Fred used to go out unannounced and over to Children's Hospital and visit children who were really gravely ill. With no Nobody knew it. It was like his little secret trips. I mean, the people knew over... He'd call and say, I'd like to come over for a half hour. And who do you got? And they'd tell him. And so he'd pack two or three puppets. Generally, XAL and Daniel Tiger, those were his two go-to puppets. Because they were just, you know, like opposite egos, you know, sort of thing. The shy the shy little tiger and the nifty-galifty owl, you know, that kind of big thing. So, And sometimes he would call me and say, I'm heading over. And and one night I went, I went over with him and... Just, you know, we're just pals. He, he, he drove this black Buick Electra. I think it's, you know, a Buickless Sabre. <laughs> Big black. He called it the Bishop's Car because it had like red red upholstery. He didn't buy I don't know where he got this thing. But it was, it was a nice, big, cushiony, balloony kind of car. So we drive over there and he did his visits. And and I kind of hung. I did other stuff when he was there. But he, I, I wouldn't be with him. He did one-on-one stuff with the kids. So then, uh, often we go home and we'd st- I'd stop at his place and have a cup of tea. Or, and a friend didn't drink, mm. and so. But this one night we're driving home and it's raining like crazy. This was fairly early in my little secret business with Fred because we were just pals. And I realized that this is still I still my hands sweat when I'm talking about this. We came up to uh, we're coming up to this intersection and it was raining like crazy. He said. Paul, do you mind telling me whether that traffic light is red or green? And I was staring at I said, Fred, it's, and as I started to say, Fred, it's green, I realized it just came upon me. I knew that something about, well, he's colorblind, blah, 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 blah. But I said, oh, my God. Not only is he colorblind, he, I don't know what the hell. I said, and in a second, I said, you know, would you mind very much if I if I drove the rest of the way home? And he looked at me. He said, "That would be wonderful." That we used to say, "That would be wonderful." All right. 
So I got in the car. Yeah. And I drove away. From then on, whenever I went, I, I was driving Mr. Rogers instead of driving Miss Daisy. Let me tell you. I did the drive. Man, are you kidding? Scared the hell I out of me. I love that story so much. I love it. Yeah, it's true. I do and remember it, uh, that story. And, oh, and, and I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, and my son, my son is colorblind. Yeah. So I get it. I get it. And <laughs> there's times where I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. Well, he said one time, this is after I left, I'm pretty sure, yeah, maybe a couple of years after I was gone, that somebody, he, somebody stole the car, somebody stole the bishop, the bishop mobile. And, you know, this boosted the damn thing. And the next day, Pittsburgh police call Fred and say, we have your car, Mr. Rogers. And the person left a note in it and said, if I had known it was your car, Mr. Rogers, I never would have stolen it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. He wrote a note. It's so awesome. The thief, yeah. Just that basically. Right. Yeah, you so. imagine being the person that stole Mr. Rogers' car? Exactly. He didn't awesome. want to be. He wanted to get the hell clear of that one. I don't know how he found out that person, but. Right. It's like really the holy grail of Christ. I don't I get it. So, I, you know, it was just, I just think about how amazing that is that he, he intentionally would just go do that because he knew what a difference it would make. And all of the simple little things that we could do for children that we have no idea. I think about like, you know, bar mitzvahs or communions or, you know, going to a recital or going to a soccer game or it just, there's such significance when they look up and they see that's my teacher. Like Mm -hmm. she's, she actually came to see me. And, and even during this time of COVID, I've been well, I've had basically two classes now. I had the ones I had in March before we left school, and then I have the ones now. And I can see on their faces when they're starting to kind of disengage or they're struggling. And so one of my little girls, I just drove to her house and I was like, here I am. What do you need? Completely uh-huh. changed everything. For her. What oh. You know what a couple of them said to me? They said, you have legs because they only saw me on the screen. Uh, they didn't agree? think I actually had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. So I have this for you. This is one of my little girls asking you a question. I'm going to play it and see if you can hear it. Okay. okay. Here we go. Okay. Um, Mr. Lowry, how do you control Mr. Rogers? Does he have a little headphone so he can hear you? What an amazing question. Did you hear what she said? Not really, but you she can She said, re- she, yeah, she said, how did you control Mr. Rogers? Did he have a little headphone so you could talk to him mm-hmm. inside his ear? Mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. such an amazing question. Very good. You, how did you direct Fred? I would, Mr. Rogers and I would talk before he started to talk on television. We would talk beforehand. Now I'm talking to her now, but we would talk beforehand. So I knew what he was going to say, and he knew that I knew. And while he was talking during the program, I would then talk to other people helping make the pictures, and I would tell them what to do. But I never told Mr. Rogers what to do. He always told me, and then he spoke to you. So that's how we did it. (laughs) That's exactly what I thought you would say. I thought, oh, man, I don't think he got to boss Mr. Rogers around. They also were so interested in the puppets, because I know from all of my research as well, 
just being around people that knew Fred, he loved puppetry. And you had talked about in another story that you told me once about that you almost would forget that Fred was behind them, right? You would talk to Daniel or oh, X, oh, like yeah. you would be talking to someone. They were so like, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Well, certainly, and I know from Fred's um, with puppetry is back up slightly. It's it's all about projection. You project yourself into in an, an inanimate object, and you direct the attention toward the inanimate object until it becomes alive. And it's not your what you're doing with a puppet. It's your belief that that puppet's real. And very often, if you watched Betty and Daniel at the clock, I would always have a picture. When Betty talked to Daniel about important stuff, you'd see Betty's face and how she'd listen to Daniel and tilt her head because she she believed in the puppet. It's not the puppet, this little raggy thing with with fishing line for whiskers. But it was her belief in the puppet that makes you believe. It's, it's very simple, and it always works that way. And it allowed Fred, through puppetry, if you can imagine five fingers on his hands, all the different personalities of the imperious king, the rascally Lady Elaine, the adolescent ex the owl, the shy tiger, the feminine uh, Henrietta Pussycat, you can see all those multiple personalities that Fred had, he was able to make characters. Any writer who does that, I, when I, I write novels, each of my characters get to be part of me. I get to, you know, get my feelings into these different people. Fred got his feelings into these puppets in such a way with such minimal motion and stuff. He was very tiny. You, you watch his very little motion you know, physically wiggling around. When, when those puppets are talking, it's the words. It's quite uh, remarkable. And they're little ratty old looking things, but Fred believes in them. And that's why the voices are real, you know. How the heck are you? You know, he just d dives right into it. And King Friday and all this. Right. So. Right. I know that he called people in the voices. Did he ever call you in a puppet voice? Yeah. When I got the job, uh, Finally, he he called, and, but I answered the phone and I said hello. He said, "May I speak with Sarah Lally?" <laughs> he went right off into King that. Friday. So, yeah, King nice. Friday <laughs> talked to Sarah, who was maybe <laughs> seven years old at the time, and then she was just right into it. And then he, then Daniel the Tiger, okay. Daniel Tiger talked with her, and he would call. Man. That's incredible. Like, what an amazing memory. And I know your kids helped paint some of the, yeah. the dogs on the floor, too, right? Yeah. They yeah. Would, yeah. I had so two cool. dogs. Yeah. They, they helped. Yeah. yeah. I just think about, you know, being on television, I know what it's like to be in a, in a set, and I know all of that stuff. But, I mean, there's just something so amazing about that. And, I, you know, but coming around the corner and seeing – the puppets behind glass, there was something missing, right? Because you're like, well, there they are, but where is he? Yeah. You know? Yes. And I, I have used puppets with my kids. And what's interesting is as I pull them out and they recognize that, they're, you know, Daniel Tiger or their ex or whatever, I, I'll, you know, I can try to do the voice and they still believe that it's them. Like, uh -huh. even though they know I'm sitting there manipulating the puppet and trying my best to sound Southern, right? for X or whatever, they believe it. 
because they they understand that I am trying to do that for them. And they'll just start talking to Daniel and telling him things like he finally just showed up. Um, it's just so beautiful. And I remember when a representative came from the Fred Rogers Center and she asked the kids, what do you love the most about Mr. Rogers? And one of my little boys, it got to him and he said, when we watch Mr. Rogers, my teacher loves me. <laughs> and it was just Sweet. like the perfect thing to hear. Oh, right, a- because it was about me intentionally pulling up a chair and watching it with them and telling them nothing else matters mm-hmm. but this mm-hmm. moment right here. Yeah. And so even on Zoom, you'll be happy to know this. I have an hour with them in the morning and 23 to 28 minutes or whatever of it is watching. We still watch the neighborhood. Because oh, that was more important to me than reading or writing or anything else. They need to know that they're loved. They need to know it. Yeah. Yeah. I sing it to them by myself and they know how to spell the word friend now because <laughs> he no. spelled it in the song and it, they, and they, they put their finger up just like Fred, you know, there's only yes. one in this wonderful world. Yeah. And, uh, and people yes. can like you and just the way you it, are. Right. These are, it's, yes. I, you know, it's an th- important thing to try to remember that, Neighborhoods have been around long before Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and neighborhoods will be around long after they're gone. That people make neighborhoods and people make neighbors, and for their those children to see that modeled on television, that that will last forever. And then they go out and they model it. They become neighbors. They're being good neighbors, and you're helping that. Yes, uh, you know you are modeling yes. what it's like to be a good neighbor. And it's, I find it interesting that that child made that sort of quantum leap had nothing to do with your loving them, but that's where he went with that thought. What do you like most about Mr. Rogers? He didn't say, well, I like his sweaters. He makes me laugh. He's my, he said, my teacher loves me. I mean, that is a very sophisticated interpolation, which proves that love doesn't care how tall or short you are comes out of people. And he did that way. It's, it's quite remarkable. Fred would, have done what oh, I just did. Yeah. Okay. Fred would drill down like I just did. He would see the the unexpected in that child's reaction and tell you, and I'm being Fred now for you, and he would turn it back on you as a teacher that you were able to provide that environment long enough for a child to feel safe enough to relax his or her guard and make that leap in their head. And they did. So that's a tribute to you as well as to the power of love. Thank you. Actually, and I'm going to let you in on a secret. That is the little boy that started it all. He's the one that was broken and violent and he was lost. And that is the reason I brought the neighborhood to my classroom. That is the little boy that said that. And this is a little boy that never wanted to be touched and would throw people up against the wall and, you know, reenact domestic violence witnessed and uh while we were watching the neighborhood i he would get up and get a drink and it's one of those kids that you were like where are you going because you're worried he's gonna go set something on fire behind my back Uh but then what he would do is he would go to the drinking fountain get a drink and then come back slowly coming up behind me wrap his arms around my neck (laughs) and i would just sway with and just tell him i love you and he'd say yeah i know but it was one of those things where it became his routine and it was his way of, he would approach me from the back so he could make the choice. 
but he knew that every time he wrapped his arms around me, that I would receive him. And that is what I was trying to do. That was what I was trying to model to them. But I also feel like all of Fred's prayers over that program are protecting me now as a teacher, that they're ahead of me and, you know, surrounding me as I do this journey, because it's not easy. I mess up all the time, but I also always, always ask them to forgive me and say, oh, I'm having really big feelings about this. I need Mm -hmm. some time. And so say things to me like, well, you could go into the calm down corner and pound clay. (laughs) Like they use, what would you do with the math that you feel? Or they use something like they say, it's okay. Grownups come back or whatever. They, they are able to say all of these complex things that they feel because it's been modeled to them. And that is the gift I want to give teachers is that they could actually stop working so hard and actually be making more of a difference in the children because it's not about the content. It's about the heart of a child that they feel that they are capable of doing anything. Love, love watching my kids experience everything for the first time through Fred's eyes, like music and having watch. We haven't gotten to Wynton Marcellus or any of that kind of stuff or Yo-Yo yet, but I'm so excited because I remember the first time last year that I turned on Yo-Yo when we were just going to do writing and they were like, it's Yo-Yo mom. And I was like, that is so rad. Five and six year olds know, you know, or it's like Perlman. Gosh, like who does that as a five-year-old? But but I love that Fred wasn't worried about bringing these sophisticated, beautiful things. He brought the best to the have them see. Yeah. That's what yes. it is. Yeah. And Johnny, Johnny Costa was ridiculously amazing. And just, I had no idea as a child what they were surrounding me with and how everything was, you know, of trying to, t- you know, Fred throwing his shoe in the right time or it's just, it's so brilliant. And I'm just so thankful for all that you did to create that with him. Thank you so much. Cause it's just a gift. It just keeps going and going, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Because well, doing what you're doing, uh, it has allowed a resurgence with Fred just because of the world situation yes, or whatever. You know, who knows? But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how long it'll last, but I'm glad, you know, it, it showed up at the right time the last two years or so with uh, the documentary, the Tom Hanks movie, which I thought was just yeah. fine. Yeah, he, he won me over in a second because I knew it was Fred was going to be the supporting character in that storyline, not the star. And that's why it worked. And Hanks was great. Instantly, that's my opinion. Frank, Hanks's ability to be still was fabulous. That's what he got as an actor. He noticed how Fred could be still, you know, and it worked. Oh, that's another thing. Stillness. Let's talk about that because Fred's, for you guys to to be still and have moments of absolute silence was super brave. (laughs) That was super brave to look at things and just be quiet. And so I've incorporated that into my teaching where when they get done with something, they're like, what do I do? And I'm like, be quiet. Let Mm -hmm. your brain rest. Mm-hmm. deliberately pause when I'm talking to them and just let it be quiet for a couple minutes. And they just look at me and they never, they don't, they don't disengage. Like, yeah. Oh man. I remember when we went to our first assembly, like where all the school was there after we'd been watching the neighborhood consistently for a, probably about a, two months and the kids were riveted. 
with listening to the music that, you know, fifth and sixth graders were, were creating because they've learned that all things can be appreciated. Mm-hmm. They got that from Fred. And I was, I was stunned by their ability to appreciate after watching the neighborhood. That was it, it. And they weren't, they weren't, you know, sitting on their knees. They weren't being rude. And you would look around and it was like, they were like in this bubble of appreciation because they were able to completely attune to it and listen. I'm just like, wow. I mean, it floored me and people were giving me compliments and I'm like, it's not me. <laughs> I mean, I guess it, it, it is, but it's, it's more about what you surround children with. You surround them with good people. You surround them with good things and they do blossom. They do grow. Like you said, I'm just going to get down on the floor and play and children really, they're so willing to receive us and receive good things if we just give them freely, you know? So I wanted to not take up too much more of your time, but I just wanted to ask you, what would be the the simple and deep things that you could impart to educators and caregivers from your experience with Fred the most? Like, what are the, what are your takeaways? Maybe like one or two takeaways that you would want people to know? Oh, not at the risk of, you know, repeating Fred Rogers, but I would do my best to meet the child where they are in their life and to know that what they're bringing to their moment is the drama going on in their life at that particular moment. That's all. And that it's of value. And to just simply to meet it, not to get beyond the 50 yard line to see what's going on. That I'm sure these are things that a teacher, just a teacher, but they do on a daily basis. No, but we do. We catastrophize. Like if we see a child take something that's not theirs and instead of just focusing on what's going on, we're thinking, oh my gosh, now they're going to be a felon and now they're going to, like, we, we we think so far ahead in the future that we don't just ask them what's going on. And they might have just taken that because they liked it and they thought they could. Like, oh, I well, I would really like a red marker. So I just took the red marker. It could be something yeah. so simple or yeah. be doing that because they know something else. But if I'm already thinking and catastrophizing, now I'm not even in the present moment anymore with that. So it makes complete sense. And this may be the most important thing also is to do your best to stay in the present. The the Brits have a saying, don't get ahead of the storyline. Woody Allen, (laughs) my favorite director, Woody Allen said, why can't my movies be like watching a Knicks game? You never know what's going to happen to the the buzzer. You can't get ahead of the storyline of a basketball game. You can't. And, right. you, you, and no. as, a te- as a teacher, try to do your best not to get ahead of the storyline. Like, for instance, the red marker or whatever it is, stay in the present. Stay, you know, that that the present is all there is. Everything else is, is commentary and speculation, right or wrong. And it's a lot easier. But it's not, it's easier to cope with, but it's hard to do because you want to draw conclusions. But I just think, but that's, I just try to, re- I remember that with my own children and watching Fred a thousand million times. When he would kneel down and look at the kid, I knew that that's all there was at the moment. We were in the moment. We were in the now. We were not getting ready to go do a location shoot. We weren't going to, you know, 
we were there. And he was great at that. He would look at you and you knew you had no escape. You know, you were in Fred's <laughs> presence. You were in the grand cosmic present and you couldn't get out of it. You'd try to wow. squirrel around. He'd let right. you do it, but he'd reel you back with silence. If he want, you know, he and it wasn't intentionally, he wasn't conniving. It's just the way it's just the way he is and the way he was. I say is because, you know. Kind of. That that yeah. spirit is still just yeah, he is. He's as real as you are, or I am, or that kid is that you're going to see tomorrow. You know, it's just they're real, and it's just assuring. I'm glad that we can uh, talk about that guy's work. Not unlike anybody who has had a huge effect, you'd like to talk about them and what they did. And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing uh, to promulgate. The simplicity of his life. Uh, it's great. So. Well, it's all, it was so intentional. And that's the thing is, uh, I guess I started to just miss childhood, seeing childhood, miss seeing children be allowed time yep. to, to figure out who they are and not just push them through some little, this funnel that we've created for them. And, and then I found myself wanting my own children to be kind of conformed to this model. And I was like, you know, I remember just the first time I started writing about it, I just wept and wept because I thought, what did I, what did I have? And I thought, well, I had Mr. Rogers. And so I started showing him mm-hmm. with no reason except that he and it still works. And so thank you for sharing your memories and your time. And I just know that everybody is going to be very, very blessed by this. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for doing this. You're very welcome. And, uh, you know, keep the faith and keep staying in the present. And I'm going to do the very same thing. And as Fred would say, I'll see you down the road. (laughs) Right. Thanks for joining us this week on Simple and Deep. Make sure that you visit my website, wisteriaedwards.com, where you can subscribe to receive updates about my upcoming book, Waiting for Mr. Rogers. And while you're at it, if you found value in the show, I'd appreciate you giving it a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to it, or simply tell a friend about the show too. That would be a great help. Till next time, take care.